Hello and welcome to another episode of Anti-Culture. I'm your host, Josiah Sinanen, and today we are chatting with 27-year-old, not one, but two-time cancer survivor and all-around inspiration, Amy Redding. I'm excited to dive into Amy's identity journey that her life has become in the past two years, as well as chat about her pursuits of journalism, authorship, and more. My body was like crying out for me to, to nap and sleep and rest, and I was like, man, Amy, you're so lazy. Why do you keep napping? Or like, I was so hard on myself. And I look back and I just have to take it as like a lesson moving forward for myself personally. In It sounds so cliche, but like listening to your body and yourself and not holding your work abilities up to someone else's and thinking it's not enough. Because I was getting it done. I just constantly felt like I wasn't doing enough. So ironic because I was like embarrassed by the very things that were my cancer symptoms. Anticulture is a member of the Alberta Podcast Network, a collection of locally grown and community-supported podcast shows here in Alberta. You can find us and other shows like ours at albertapodcastnetwork.com. This episode of Anticulture is also brought to you by the Calgary Foundation. Whether it's funding anti-racism programs, addiction recovery, or food hampers for the hungry, for 65 years, the Calgary Foundation has proudly supported the charitable community to address some of Calgary's biggest challenges. Now, during this period of unprecedented urgent needs, Calgary Foundation renewed its commitment to building a healthy, vibrant, giving, caring, and resilient community. If you're a registered charity looking for a grant, a professional advisor, creating a giving plan for your client, or a donor wanting to give back to the community, discover a wealth of resources at calgaryfoundation.org and learn more about their work through the Calgary Foundation's Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We also want to mention Park Power. In Alberta, you get to choose where you buy your energy from. Park Power has low overhead, and chances are you'll save money if you switch. You can find out how much money you would save by visiting parkpower.ca and plugging your numbers into the Alberta Energy Savings Calculator. If you decide to switch, it's easy. Nothing changes about your service, only the price you pay. Learn more at parkpower.ca. At 25 years old, Amy Redding was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, a type of cancer that forms in your lymphatic system and can pass throughout the body. The cancer can affect people between 20 to 40 years old in some cases, and Amy was one of those cases. Now 27, Amy Redding has fought and won cancer twice. Growing up as a PK, the quote-unquote affectionate nickname for pastor's kid, here in Alberta, Amy's projected perceptions, experience, and coming out the other side offer an inspiring insight into triumph and moving forward. None of us expect to get sick in our mid-twenties, and there is a stigma often associated with it when it happens, especially when it comes to being healthy, young, and having little medical history. Today's episode explores the mentality of facing that stigma in a special look at this incredible story. On top of that, Amy has navigated the additional box she was placed in by being a pastor's kid. At the height of her journey through adulthood, Amy had moved to Hawaii, was working as a freelance journalist, and was ghostwriting a novel for someone she admires very dearly. Life was how she envisioned it, until the diagnosis. Without further ado, here is Amy Redding. Amy Redding, thank you for joining me, and I have so much I want to get into with you, and I just wanted to start by offering you a chance to maybe tell us a bit about yourself and something we like to do on the show is give our guests an opportunity to tell everyone how they identify and that can mean whatever you want it to mean cultural or maybe some of the boxes you're put in but uh, why don't you just paint us a picture of that sure so I'm Amy Redding I gosh I have a lot of boxes I think that 
I have been put in. I thought about this a little bit, but I think my favorite identifier right now of myself would be storyteller. And the reasoning mostly is because I feel like storytelling, it doesn't shove me into one box of like, I'm just talking about my career as a ghostwriter, or I'm just talking about like who I feel I am, but it really encompasses everything. And especially since I've stepped into like more of a freelance world, I've actually just really, I value identifying as something outside of like what I do. (laughs) I think that's a hugely like North American concept and I love what I do and I love trying new things, but storytelling to me is like, it could include like my writing, my imagery, my arts, and it also just includes like who I am as a person. Like I love telling stories. I love talking to people. I'm very extroverted. So yeah, that would probably be like how I lately feel like I would identify myself. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I think one of the ways that I remember you most too, and we grew up kind of going to the same church that was pastored by your dad and the whole, I think, vibe and spirit behind that community at that time was very story driven. And that's something that I I really admired about that time in my life is just how much people's stories were valued. And so I think to grow up in that environment must have really influenced you in that sense as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know we talked before about like pastor's kid and if that's a box that I fit in. I don't want to like step on your question, but it, it just made me think of that because I was thinking about that answer. And I guess for people who don't know me, pretty much the whole my whole life, my dad's been a pastor because he was working downtown and a big corporate job. And when I was about four, he transitioned. And I honest to goodness, like I can't relate very well with people who talk about like boring stifled churches that they grew up in and like sitting on hard pews because I empathize for those people because I think my entire story would be different if that has had been what our church looked like. But I grew up in like, like you church was before its time. We had a huge load of like Nigerian international students, a lot of Filipinos, like very multicultural. So like I grew up with a church where like people were break dancing down the aisles and painting up at the front and anything kind of (laughs) went. And you're right, it was like, I never would have thought it that way. But yeah, very story driven and people driven. And do you, I guess, turn your face at people that might be quick to label you as a pastor's kid? Like what kind of assumptions (laughs) have you found come with that territory? Oh, man, like, I think it's funny, because like I said, I think most people assume that I had a horrible experience. I've had Christians who grew up in the church be like, I'm so sorry, that must have been so hard for you. And and they like jumped to the assumption that we had this awful time. But And I, I know there are people who grew up as pastor's kids who did have a rough go. But religion was really far from our church, at least in my eyes as a kid. And obviously, I, I hit my age and time and era of my life where I really questioned my own faith. And at that point, I think I put others' judgments on me but I never actually had it coming from the community. Like I was basically raised by university students who went to the church. So I thought it was so cool. Like I probably until high school, I thought being a pastor's kid was amazing because I hung out with like university kids from like four on. (laughs) They took me to McDonald's for Sunday school, you know, like. Totally. Yeah, it is quite a different experience. And what do you think made that experience so different? Like, was it having to do with who your parents are or what the church was, or how did that even come to fruition? I imagine you wouldn't know much more beyond the world at that point, but what do you think it is that made you church such an outlier? 
yeah, my parents would be quick to say it's definitely not them, (laughs) but that would be them being humble and everything. I think it never pretended to be something it wasn't. Like I said, religion was never something that I associated with our church and uh, religion itself was actually like quite a foreign concept to me. And, and I really interacted with it later in life and in different climates, but it was never at church. And I think part of that was probably the demographic. We, like I said, it was on a university campus. So there's a lot of young people who were kind of just searching and they found love. They found this source of love and community and connection. And so we probably would have looked less like a church to some more traditional Christians. But I think that was and is like the beauty in, yeah, in people. And that's, to me, that is, it is faith. Sharing your faith is with people who you can relate to and who believe similar things maybe, but also just are drawn to like a source of love or drawn to comfort, peace. And there's not a lot of rules. (laughs) I think humans get involved and there's a lot of rules, but Yeah. Like I said, I grew up thinking it was the coolest thing. And it wasn't until I kind of got my toes out in the world more that I started to feel like I was embarrassed by it or whatever. I don't know. Every high schooler is embarrassed by things. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Just kind of that phase of life. And I think, yeah, for those who don't know, the church that Amy's referring to was based on a university campus. So it did offer kind of an entry point that is that was a lot thinner, I think, than a lot of traditional church buildings. So that's really cool. And I think it's it's exciting to hear someone kind of challenge that stigma. And I think your upbringing is very unique. It kind of creates your own culture around yourself. So I love that you've kind of wrapped that up in the term storyteller. That's really cool. And to kind of give you the opportunity to share your story a bit more, I do want to get into kind of how things progressed in your life at age 25, when, you know, a lot of people look at that as their happiest and most productive time and kind of their chance to be free and be an adult. And that was kind of taken away from you in some senses when you received your diagnosis. Yeah. There's so much you can say about cancer and about the effects it has. They're they're very wide reaching. And I think I'm learning more and more after my second diagnosis even. But yes, the first time I got diagnosed, I was 25. I was middle of living my life. I had just gotten a deal to write a book for someone. So I was doing my first ever ghostwriting. I spent a lot of time in Maui because I could, like I was working freelance and I was over there volunteering with a church and with lower income, like youth and kids. So I was just like living my best life <laughs> in yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah, And yeah, I don't need to go into all the details, but definitely got hit out of the blue with cancer. I don't think any young person expects that to be what's wrong when you you have a bit of issues and you're like, at worst, I thought I had mono, you know? And then to find out, you know, it's stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma was definitely one of the most shocking experiences. I wouldn't even label it as like traumatizing. It was just shocking. It was so unprecedented. Like it was just never where my mind would have gone. And yeah, I guess if you... A lot of my inner circle probably heard this from my own mouth during that season. My treatment during my first diagnosis was six months of chemo. So every two weeks, I went in and sat in a chair for like three to four hours and had four drugs pumped into me. 
It's called ABVD, and it's kind of like your baseline chemo. At the start, thought a lot about this. I'm like, why was I so chill about it all? And honestly, I was so exhausted. Like, cancer just tires you out so freaking much. I remember telling people, I was like, I feel like my life's on pause, and I was really angry about it. It was really hard. I'm not a bitter person, but it definitely got like increasingly hard to watch people my age, like getting engaged, getting married, having babies, doing all these things, which is like normal. I think everyone, you can have a bit of FOMO in your 20s if like someone's on a different path than you anyway, but to feel like I can't even do that. And I had to, I had been living out of Canada, so I had to move back in with my parents and obviously like my work, my ability to work was really diminished and it just felt like everything I used to identify with or most mid 20 people identified as it all kind of got stripped from me, my independence and like my pride in what I was doing. And it's been quite a learning lesson. Yeah. And were you in Maui when you got the diagnosis as well? Yes, I was actually, it was like kind of month to month renting a place and I'd been there for a couple of months at the time, I think like four or five, when I finally went to the doctor. And yeah, basically it came out like you should go home for more testing as soon as you possibly can because they did a chest x-ray on me and saw a 10 by 15 centimeter mass in my chest, which as soon as you hear that, it was like, oh crap. Like, <laughs> And she, I remember the doctor was like, I can't officially diagnose you, but it's everything is indicative of cancer and you should fly home. Yeah, it was an interesting time. Like I, I up to that point, I'd been like surfing. I'd been going on jogs on the beach. Like everything was really hard. And I'd been working on this book like every single day. And I remember I went to the doctor and she's like, okay, first off, you need to stop everything you're doing. <laughs> and it was a weird thing at the time to be told in your 20s, like stop doing everything. And then when I did stop, that's when I realized how tired I was. Do you remember the moment when you first heard the word cancer and how you felt when you heard that? It's kind of a weird timeline. So I went into the doctor because my friends pointed out a lump in my neck and I had not even noticed it up till then. And then and then they asked me like casually or the doctor's like, so what other things have you been experiencing? And it's like, well, you know, I'm like, I'll go from like really sweaty and overheated to freezing. And then I'm sleeping all the time. Like I'm napping. I remember telling my cousin, I was like, is this what 25 is? I need a nap every day. And I just like honestly took it as like, yeah, this is the start of like downhill. Like I'm getting old, which is so funny to me now. Like anyways, I was super exhausted. I couldn't catch my breath, which I've always had mild asthma. So I just chalked that up to that. I kept getting like the flu-like symptoms and I just thought I'm stressed, like I'm finishing this book. I remember looking at the doctor as I was listing all these things and she's just like, her face is getting more and more serious. And she was like, kind of paid attention to my lump in my neck, like palpated it. And then she's like, I really want to do a chest x-ray. She did that and it was a Friday and she, she was flying to Oahu and she's like, I probably, you won't hear from me till Monday, like just take it easy. And I knew it was bad because I got a call Saturday morning, like the next day, and she was on her vacation. And she was like, I don't want to freak you out, but everything you've told us from your chest x-ray, everything we've seen is highly indicative of Hodgkin's lymphoma. And you can either come back and get more tests here, which obviously you're paying out of pocket. It was the States. Or she's like, if I were you, I would just get on a plane and go home. Tell us about what happened with this book project you're working on. At the time, I was pretty stoked. I had been offered by a close family friend 
connected to my parents' church, he just thought of me and was like, hey, would you consider ghostwriting my book, which was something at the time I'd never, ever done. But again, always been drawn to writing, studied journalism and communications in university. And so immediately I was like, yes, this is what I want to do. This is it. I actually find it very interesting because for me as, I guess, like a creator, a freelancer, all of these things, the timing of my diagnosis with that book is really interesting. It was the first ever time I'd worked without like a boss or a manager looking over my shoulder, breathing down my neck. And I wasn't reporting. I was reporting things, obviously, to the guy I was working with. But essentially, I was my own boss. And I think a lot of creators really struggle with comparison. And I was like constantly comparing myself. I always thought I wasn't putting enough work in or doing enough. And I had no concept of how to gauge like what a productive day was for me and for the type of work I was doing. And it was hard because I didn't know anyone else ghostwriting. So I didn't know who to talk to about it. Like I was like, it was just me and my own like intuition. And what crossed over with that timing, the last three months, which was the busiest three months of the book, happened to be the three months my symptoms were awful. (laughs) So here I was like condemning myself because I thought I was doing awful at working from home when in reality, like my body was like crying out for me to to nap and sleep and rest. And I was like, man, Amy, you're so lazy. Why do you keep napping? Or like, I was so hard on myself. And I look back and I'm like, I just have to take it as like a lesson moving forward for myself personally. It sounds so cliche, but like listening to your body and yourself and and not holding your work abilities up to someone else's and thinking it's not enough. Because I was getting it done. I just constantly felt like I wasn't doing enough. It's so ironic because I was like embarrassed by the very things that were my cancer symptoms. I was like, oh, I'm like doing all this, but I'm exhausted. No one my age is this tired. No one my age is like, and so I just kept doing more and I didn't listen to my body's like, like I said, signals. I was still surfing. I was still jogging. I was doing all these things that were just like stealing all my energy. (laughs) Can you tell us a bit more about what the book was about? And congratulations on finishing it. It's out now, which is crazy. And you did it. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. Gosh, the end was like a grind. Yeah, it's called it's called Do Not or Don't Throw Away Your Confidence. Haven't talked about this book in a while. It's been yeah, I guess it came out like a year or so ago. But I basically finished the rough drafts the week I got unofficially diagnosed in Maui. So I sent it all off to the editor, walked back from the doctors and was like told to stop everything. So Well, that's good timing too in some ways. It was and it wasn't because basically what happens, usually there's a lot more back and forth. This book probably could have had more editing done, but it's still, it turned out amazing. We had an incredible editor, but I wasn't able to do any like, my life like imploded the week that I would have been like, do it and we'll go back and we'll send this copy back. It was like, so that actually like I finished initially in May maybe, or sorry, June was when I was diagnosed. And then I would say it was kind of on hold until basically September, October when I had gotten used to like chemo enough and my routine and my life to restart and like finish and fix all the little edits that needed to be made. But it's a really cool book. It's um, <laughs> it's a story, basically the story of John Rohr. It's his life stories. He is a pastor, teacher, preacher. 
he's an ex-basketball coach, life coach, mentor to a lot of young people literally all across the world. And I'm not exaggerating. Like he's been to so many countries and he is truly called coach by like so many people because he just has this gift of edifying and lifting people up and telling you exactly what you need to hear when you need to hear it. And it was like such an honor to sit with him. We did a bunch of sessions for like hours and hours. I flew to Nashville one weekend and he just told me story after story. And yeah, we basically put made every chapter a different story about someone he coached or mentored or knew that impacted his journey with confidence. Coming back to maybe some of the stigma that people would assume comes with being a PK, I know that some of my listeners will be wondering what the reaction to your diagnosis was from a spiritual perspective, from your family's perspective. And did you find that there was a lot of pressure on how you should respond to the diagnosis because of that background? Or was that not really something you struggled with? I think that really would depend on the person. So like, yes, a lot of people around me probably anticipated a certain response. But I think at this point in my life, I'm at a place where I'm very free to respond however I choose. And I think personally, for me, that's the difference between a faith that's built around rules or a faith that's built around a relationship with God and a real peace and reality of like walking in your in your own identity. And so you can't control how like other people respond. I guess I, d- I had a really good friend who grew up in the church also. And I remember when I got sick, we share a sarcastic sense of humor. She's like, oh, Amy, I can't wait to hear some of the cheesy lines like Christians throw at you kind of thing. <laughs> and I was bracing for them. And either people held their tongues or I just have an amazing group of people around me because I can honestly say like I was not offended. I was not offended by almost anything. And this second diagnosis, I maybe I've been more critical. Maybe I've been less tired. So I've been more a key and alert to it. But the one thing that did trigger me was, and this isn't, I would never name names. It was a well-meant statement, but this person was praying for me. And it was before I lost my hair and they were like, I just like, they were trying to pray like, empowering things. And he's like, a woman's beauty or her crown is her hair. And I remember, and it was just like, in Jesus name, you're not going to lose it. And I, in the moment I was just like, okay, sure. And then I think it was like a week later and my hair was already starting to to thin. And I was like, you know what? Screw that. Like, that's not true. And he didn't mean it in the wrong way. He's an older generation. And I honestly believe like that was just his interpretation. And that's where I think religion does hurt people is because we often put our own, we imbue our own beliefs into it. And I think that's partially actually what has flipped and given me more confidence being bald is I hold on to those words and I'm like, you know what, screw that. I'm going to model with no hair. I'm going to do all these things. And I have felt way more confident, even like wearing crazier outfits and just like all these different things since my hair fell out. And I think partially what motivated me was that comment. So like, there's things like that. (laughs) It's interesting how things like that can make or break what you really how you really view religion. But also, I think because you never saw it that way, it allowed you this opportunity to be empowered from it, which is really cool. I was trying to like, I think about that box, the pastor's kid box. And to be honest, 
I do empathize. I know my story is different than a lot of people who grew up in religion and grew up in a church. But I do think more often than not, and this could go for anything like church, just life in general, sexual orientation, like we perceive judgment more often than people are casting it. And maybe I'm naively like optimistic about the world, but I do believe we we often like create our own judgments and we think people are thinking them about us. And one of the most freeing things cancer has given to me is just this like complete disregard <laughs> for what other people think. It's like, it's probably what's motivated me to like start posting more of my creative things online and say yes to things like this or yeah, just like to challenge myself or like I said, like rock a bald head and not care is been this realization that like I am the only one putting these judgments and I definitely went through a phase with a church where I thought I was going to be completely judged for things. So I just stopped going or I avoided it or I didn't speak up. And it's taken me a couple of years to realize, you know, if I'd said things to the right people that I trust, it probably would have been fine. They would have helped me walk through it. And I just put that in. I put that on them without asking. Now, I do want to revisit kind of the remainder of the story with your journey with cancer. And you did get diagnosed and defeat a second round, <laughs> which is insane to me. And I can't even imagine maybe the dread that you would have felt when you knew that there was a second time. And maybe that's me projecting my judgment, but <laughs> <laughs> why don't you walk us through what that was like getting that second diagnosis and what happened? No, you're definitely not projecting. Definitely dread is a good word. I was thinking about this this morning because we were going to chat about this and I would hesitate and not use the word trauma for my first diagnosis, like I said earlier, but definitely the second diagnosis was traumatic. It was like nothing short of traumatic. How much longer was the second diagnosis from when you had beat the first time? My very first official diagnosis day was June 27th, 2018, I think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm sorry. Years are years are confusing. It was 2018, <laughs> yeah. and then I did six months of chemo. I finished chemo on December 6th. I flew back to Maui and was house sitting, and then the pandemic brought me home in March. And my second diagnosis, I was re-diagnosed June 26th, 2019. So I didn't even make it a year, which that was pretty hard. <laughs> even just like I don't know why I was just like really I couldn't have made it like to the 28th. So this time around. It just was, again, so out of the blue, and partly because Hodgkin's lymphoma, from day one, my doctors were so optimistic. They're like, it's very curable. It's very treatable. Like, you're going to get through this. And it was, I believe that to, like, my core. Like, I guess I, I embodied the power of positive thinking my first diagnosis. I was like, yep, it's going. It's gone. I was declared cancer-free August of that year after only a month of chemo. And so the rest f five months were actually just because they never just stop. Like they want to kill off all the like microscopic cancer cells, which <laughs> alas, we did not apparently. So what happened was, yeah, I was cancer free, had no symptoms, was doing great. And then I think I was just like working out, it was pandemic, working out in my basement, came upstairs and I was stretching, which I rarely do. And I was stretching my neck. You know, when you do like head circles and I turned my head to the right and I saw a lump in the exact same spot where my lump had been a year before. And there's a scar there now because they did a surgical biopsy 
And so it was really obvious, like there was a bump right under the scar. And I was like, what the heck? Like I, everything in me just like crashed. I think I started crying right then. And I called my doctor and set up an appointment, but yeah, it was interesting. And and I don't blame anyone for this because I probably would do the exact same thing, but everyone in my life, all my closest people, my boyfriend, my family, everyone was like, Amy, you're just stressed. It's okay. Don't worry. Of course it's not it again. Like you're cancer free. And then I go to my doctor and she's like, well, that would be extremely rare. We never see cancer show up in the same place the second time. So don't worry, but we'll order it like an ultrasound, but it'd be so rare. She's like, don't stress. But like, there was something in me, I think that just knew, like, I just knew, I was like, what is this? What is it if not? And you, of course you Google everything and nothing helps because it, honestly, all of my Googling always leads me to Hodgkin's lymphoma. So yeah, so I, and then I went and had an ultrasound appointment. This is like a lot of details, but diagnosis actually takes quite a long time. Unless you're like, your doctor knows basically you're like stage four or five. They rushed me through two years ago. This time it was kind of like, oh, I don't know. Like it, you go through this process. So I had an ultrasound and the ultrasound techs aren't allowed to tell you anything. So my brow was like crying in it. And I was like, do you see anything? And she was like, oh, I'm sorry. We can't share results. She leaves the room and then she comes back and she points at my neck and she's like, just to be clear, was this, this was gone a year ago. And I was like, oh my God. So you basically just freaking told me it's back. Like it's back. I think that was like the day I decided to get my puppy. <laughs> um, it's a good day. Yeah. yeah. I was like, screw this. I called my sister. I was like, we're going puppy shopping. Like let's start, let's look on Kijiji. After that, I had a PET scan, which shows metabolic activity. It actually confirms cancerous, and I had a biopsy. And so the process of that probably was about a month and a half to two months. And then I was walking my new puppy, and I was with my little niece babysitting her. And it was June 26th, and I got a call from my doctor, and she choked up. And she's like, Amy, I really I really didn't want to be the one to tell you this, but it's back. And we have a, you have a reoccurrence, and it looks like stage three this time. The unseen parts of cancer are often the hardest, I think. Both times I had about one to two months where I wasn't officially diagnosed yet, but I was going to all these appointments, scans, the ways doctors look at you when they know you're sick, like you just know like something bad's happening. And it feels like you're just, your body's in this, you're constantly grieving and you're in this state of anxiety because you don't know what you don't know. It intersected for sure the second time harder with my faith, with my beliefs, because one of the things I straight up told God, I was like, if this affects my fertility, like we're going to have issues. And they like assured me the whole first time. It was like, you don't have to worry. Like this low low grade chemo doesn't affect women's fertility, anything like that. When my doctor gave me my second diagnosis, she was like over the phone. She's like, unfortunately, because it came back so early, like it came back within three, four months. She's like, we have to do high, high dose chemo and we'll probably do a stem cell transplant and you will want to talk to a fertility doctor. And I got the number that day and I had to call them the next week and everything snowballs. It happens really fast. <laughs> how was the process of getting over this second time and where are you at now? What's kind of, how have those things kind of been resolved at this point within yourself? Yeah. Getting over is like, it's a, oh, I think a word I would have used the first time around. And now I, I don't think it's a negative thing. I just think, I don't know that you just get over, you know, something like this. And 
I think it's something that we tend to do in society in general. Like we look at someone who loses a loved one or goes through a divorce or whatever. And we're like, oh, you're over it now. And and obviously, like I would say the same thing. I just said the same thing to a friend who went through chemo. I was like, you're finished chemo. You're through it. And then I bit my tongue and I was like, what the heck? Because, you know, once you're through it, it's like that's when you battle like the mental health. That's when you deal with the lingering side effects and the reality that like something traumatic has happened to you and it doesn't just go away because the physical manifestation of it is over. So I think positive and negative, like this time around, I think I'm a little less, <laughs> I'm I'm not a pessimist at all. I'm just a little less like naive about it. And I think I'm, I'm very aware that I haven't dealt with everything for sure. <laughs> like some of my coping mechanisms are healthy, some are not healthy. And I think that's that goes for all of us, but I'm also not on any timeline. Whereas last time I really felt like I had to prove something and I had to get my life back. And I had to, I started working two jobs like the day I got out of chemo and I just didn't give myself a minute to breathe and acknowledge what I'd been through. I think this time around, I'm just acknowledging that like, this has been a huge ordeal in my life and I'm not identifying as someone like, I, I don't know how to word that. I'm not like succumbing to like, oh, now I'm bent and messed up and out of shape and, and I think that is when you let like trauma identify you or redefine you. But I see it as like a superpower, like something bad happens and you can either like let it beat you down completely and like play it as your victim card over and over again, or you can just allow it to teach you things and strengthen you and sit in the uncomfortableness and embrace the fact that you have to learn to cope with this now. And now you get to speak to that and you get to reach others who might be going through something similar. Well, yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about what your current projects are kind of coming out of that space? I know that you've done a lot of those art commissions and that F cancer movement and your blog. And it seems like it's cool to see from my perspective, because especially hearing after that first round, you kind of pushed yourself again. This time, it seems like everything that's being produced by you or that's going out, it's it's so authentic to where you're at. And it's just kind of the natural expression of, I think, that storyteller side of you. And I'm really excited about that. So how has that changed and what are you working on now or or what are you putting your energy towards, I guess? Yeah. Oh, thank you. I think my mentality around work has and is continuing to change and shift in a good way. Yeah. So the first time I was diagnosed, I just had the one book I was doing and I didn't know it was going to come after. And in the midst of that book, through word of mouth, a different guy called me up and hired me to to go straight for him. So that was one of the jobs I started right after chemo last year was it's like a novel, like a fiction novel. And yeah, it's just like action adventure thing that I'm working on, kind of a pet project for this man in LA. And it's been really fun so far, but obviously put it on a major hold when I got sick. And I do think it's cool hearing you say that because it's been one of the biggest lessons ever. Like I didn't create any boundaries for myself the first diagnosis. I just tried to push through and it's like I thought I would be stronger if I did more and like. I would go on jogs. I would just do it all. Like I, I was, I wrote about it in a blog once. I was like, I was like the idyllic cancer patient. Like I was like, look at me. Like I can do all these things. Cancer's not going to slow me down. Like 
honestly, the minute I heard I had it again, I literally looked at, I think it was my mom and I was like, I'm going on sick leave. I'm not doing anything. Like I'm, and my doctors actually told me this time around, they're like, you can't work through this treatment. It's too hard. And it was like, I, I was in no shape to work for at least four months, but it was such a good decision. Cause in that space where I removed this expectation on myself to do stuff, I started just doing things that I wanted to, because to be honest, like we all, before the pandemic, I feel like everyone glorified, like, I just want to stay at home and watch Netflix. And like, when you are stuck at home because you're sick and all you have is Netflix, it is so boring after like two hours, honestly. Like I lost interest and I was like, what am I going to do? And I started sketching again. And like I said, there's this like this new, I don't have a huge fear of what people think of me anymore like I used to. I'm sure I still have it somewhere in there and it'll pop up here and there because we're all human. But I just started posting my art, which again, speaking of boxes, I grew up as like an athlete and that was a box I really self-identified as. Played college basketball. My brother played basketball. That was all I wanted to do. And so I never felt like I could earn like artist as like a title because I wasn't as artsy as the artist like I wow, did interesting I didn't yeah. I thought I had to pick one or the other even though I did art all through high school but I would have never posted about it because it felt like very high school mentality of me to be like I have to be a jock or I have to be this and like <laughs> yeah and I'm learning like so much of me just there are no boxes it's very fluid I do a lot of different things my art is like something I'm super proud of, but mostly it's created a platform and it's opened the door for more conversations, more of what my true vision is, which I think has always been like empowering women and young women. And if men are inspired by my story too, that's awesome as well. But I do feel like a lot of my specific journey with cancer relates more to women. And so the art has been geared towards them. And through that, I've gotten custom orders and I've gotten to chat with people literally all over who will share their story with me and will find flowers that like represent the things they want to carry with them. And then we'll create a little piece. It's been a really cool experience that I never, I don't know. It's been a fun journey, like laying down everything and watching these new things just kind of grow in a season when like everything else in my life kind of was like desolation. And that would be like one of the coolest things cancer has done for me is it took away a lot of my old identifiers that I used to like really hold as like my identity. I'll wrap things up with this one question. And that is after everything you've gone through, are you a believer that everything happens for a reason? I think so still. I don't think we always get to know the reason. (laughs) I really don't pretend to know why or if there is, I guess, yeah. And that's like, it's tricky because I do believe it, but I also don't think there's like some like spiteful god up there being like and now you shall get it again amy like show us what you can do i just think we live in a a world full of like sadness and heartache and hardship and these things happen i think that we all have a really beautiful ability to turn our experiences into a reason the more you begin to know yourself and the more you begin to like really break out of your own boxes and just be like, what is my identity? What am I here for? Because I do believe we all have purposes and we have unique wirings of what we can give in our time on this earth. And 
And I think that is like a reason, you know, it's a reason enough to fight through sickness and to be around and to create things that inspire others. I hope you enjoyed our chat with Amy Redding this week on Anti-Culture. To connect with Amy, you can follow her on Instagram at Amy Redding. That's Redding with one D. You can also follow along with her blog and purchase her F cancer prints at theupside-down.com. That's the U-P-S-I-D-E-down.com. I'll see you next week for another episode of Anti-Culture. And in the meantime, join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Josiah Podcast. You can also support the show by visiting our Patreon at patreon.com slash Josiah Podcast. This episode was recorded and edited with the help of We Edit Podcasts at their studio here in Calgary. You can find out more about their services at weeditpodcasts.com. Until then, all my best.